Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on The Virtual Voyage, we were in Israel, and we had just finished our tour at Capernaum, the base for Jesus' adult ministry in the Galilee. But now we're headed a bit south to meet a very special guest. As you all know, archaeology is something we rely on at each and every site here in Israel. But there's a special field within archaeology that is of utmost importance, because without it, we would actually lose a lot of the evidence that the experts rely on as they reconstruct a picture of the past. And this field within archaeology is conservation. Right now, we're headed to meet a conservator, Rosa Lowinger. Rosa is a Cuban-born American conservator of sculpture and architectural materials, and she's had an over 30-year practice in the private sector. She graduated from the conservation program at NYU's Institute of Fine Arts and currently is co-chief conservator at RLA Conservation. She also holds several fellowships with various conservation institutes and associations. Additionally, Rosa is a writer, having published Tropicana Nights, The Life and Times of the Legendary Cuban Nightclub in 2006, along with many other articles. Her upcoming book, Dwell Time, A Memoir of Art, Exile, and Repair, is set to be published in October 2023. Well, I know it's already been a long day for Rosa because it's just after lunch and her workday at a local dig here in Israel started well before sunrise. Because a conservator's work is never done, she'll also work the rest of the afternoon and evening back at the kibbutz. We're just arriving now to meet Rosa at the kibbutz where she's staying. Let's hop on out. There she is. Rosa, thank you so much for joining us here today on the virtual voyage. It's a pleasure to be here, Abigail. Thank you for having me. So most of us aren't familiar with the idea of archaeological conservation. I'd love for us to gather in a circle here as you offer a bit of a lecture on this important field. So can you explain what conservation is, why it's important, and what the job of the conservator at an archaeological dig is? Certainly, I'd be glad to do that. Well, conservation is a profession that marries art, science, and hand skills. It's a profession that's designed to improve the longevity of the material world. And that could be cultural artifacts like you see here on the table, remnants from the archaeological site, fragments of metals, fragments of wall paintings, or on the site itself today as we were there, and the the mosaic fragments that we saw there. Or in the non-archaeological context, we are the ones that take care of museum collections. We're the ones that, for example, help institutions determine what's the best relative humidity and temperature at which to keep collections, how much light is safe for different types of items. And when accidents do happen, we're the ones that rush in and take care of the materials and either put them back together or repair them or perform other different types of processes. But what I like to emphasize about conservation from an archaeological context is the rapid introduction of materials and methodologies to stabilize things that have been in equilibrium with a burial environment for many years and are suddenly exposed to oxygen. 
so so basically that's that's the long and short of it we are trained to marry art history or archaeology with a strong knowledge of science so we can understand how things deteriorate how they damage and how you either slow that or put things back together or know when you have to actually control the environment so that things are okay. So for example, here on my table, you can see we have these containers filled with metal objects that have this white crystalline material around them. Well, that crystalline material is called silica gel. And what we do is we use it to condition the environment within these boxes where we store the metal objects so that it's as dry as possible. Silica gel is conditioned within say an oven or a microwave to be as dry as it can be. And then we put the objects into a silica gel environment, of course, always separating them from the gel itself, and then wrapping the boxes to get as much air tightness as possible. So that's that's the basics um, of what we do and what con conservation consists of. And in the past, conservation used to be kind of called restoration. That's more or less the term people might identify with what we do. But restoration is really now considered to be the act of repairing something, whereas conservation is a more global, all-encompassing context that refers to the care or treatment that repairs and takes action to prevent or slow down the further deterioration of an object. When an archaeologist opens up a square within the archaeological site, you're dealing with an environment that in the Middle East and Israel in particular, depending on what part of the country you're digging, can be typically very, very dry, very arid, but usually often very hot. And when objects are in the soil, for, for example, the mosaics, they're in the soil for hundreds, of, if not thousands of years, suddenly you are introducing oxygen into their environment. And deterioration requires, for the most part, a, a change in the equilibrium of an object in order to begin. So you have these pieces, they've been buried for a long time, nothing's been happening, they've been sitting there, unless of course you've had water intrusion or something, and suddenly you, they're exposed and you have to figure out what to do. So our work consists of first understanding, is the environment itself, the heat, the humidity, the, oxy the oxygen introduction, going to start to deteriorate things rapidly, or maybe physically they're going to change. As you've seen on the site, when you open up a square and you're looking at the mosaic, usually the edges of the mosaic where the tesserae are ended, either because it's fragmentary there or whatever, um, they start to fall apart. So our work introduces edging the mosaic so that we don't lose any more tesserae. The cleaning, for example, so that the archaeologists can read the surface, they can see the colors of the stones, they can understand the inscriptions or the design. The cleaning of that surface, if one just goes about it in any way willy-nilly, would damage or scratch the surfaces and lead to deterioration. So what we do is, as you saw us do today, me and my colleagues, we will carefully remove the dirt with soft brushes, with a little bit of water to soften the dirt, and carefully, slowly but surely uncover what is there in a manner that seeks not to make any impact that is damaging. So that's kind of the basics. Another very important thing of what we do, about what we do. 
Everything we do, everything a conservator does, and no matter what specialty, requires documentation. And while I'm saying that, let me talk to you a little bit about conservation specialties. Archaeological conservation is typically a subset of the type of conservation that involves caring for objects or for architecture, depending on how much, what type of site it is. Some sites have a lot of architecture, some sites are more object oriented, and many are combinations. But within conservation, there are many other types of specialties. There's works of art on, on paper, books and drawings and prints, furniture and wooden artifacts. Photographs are now their own specialty, and of course, paintings on canvas, which has traditionally been the broadest category and the one that receives the most attention in the media because it's often a dramatic type of work that is done to works of art that aren't paintings on canvas or murals. So you understand the difference, right? Each specialty is like a medical specialty. And when I um, speak to people who are looking for a conservator, I say that what you want to be looking for is a specialist in your field. We do not do everything. To have an archaeological conservator or someone like me who does objects and architecture treat a painting on canvas is a little bit like having your cardiologist uh, give you a knee replacement. You don't want to do that. In, in a pinch, it can happen. If you're somewhere where there's no other option, we can pretty much know what not to do, which is a lot of what is important in the work we do. But generally speaking, you wanna be looking for a specialist in your field. So you wanna look at what we have here and discuss this or you wanna talk more about the mosaics for a bit? Well, Rosa, as we continue here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, I'd love for you before we look at these artifacts, which already look fascinating, just explain what a day in the life looks like for you. What time are you arriving uh, at an archaeological site? Um, what time are you leaving? How are you spending the rest of the day? What does your day look like? Most conservators work off-site uh, most of the year and are only in the field, you know, as as the archaeologists are for a season, which would be a month or two months, depending on what the site is. Here in, at Hukok. I've been on site really every day, just about. Um, and sometimes there isn't a lot of actual conservation for me to do, but I need to be on hand in case anything is found. So I'll arrive with the team early in the morning, usually by five o'clock we're on site. And sometimes there isn't anything immediate that we need to be addressing. So we'll just be, you know, uh, sorting our materials, making sure we have everything we need, walking from square to square to make sure the archaeologists aren't finding anything that requires our attention. And then, of course, suddenly somebody finds some mosaic or some wall plaster and we'll come by immediately. We'll photograph everything, look at the condition. We'll take some notes about what we're seeing in terms of the status of things. So, for example, um, let's say wall plaster, which we find so often at Hukok, and it is um, often not painted, but sometimes it is. And very often we have to make sure that the wall plaster isn't detaching from the wall. And if it is, we need to use something called a consolidant, which is a solution that we inject behind it. We find the entry points to basically, we're basically trying to glue it onto the wall, but the consolidant, makes that connection between the plaster and the wall. If some, if one, once a mosaic is found, 
then we are all systems go to deal with the mosaic. We go up to the archaeologist. Usually our dig director is there uh, overseeing the work itself. And when they can tell that they've got mosaic on site, when they're down to the last few centimeters of dirt, then they turn it over to us to start doing the cleaning. And we're basically in the trench on our hands and knees most of the time or sitting to basically just brush dirt away, clean it with small hand tools. We are always, uh, most conservators' best friends are their dentists to see if we can get some tools from them when they're no longer useful. We use on mosaics also many materials that are not able to scratch the surfaces like wooden tools or plastic tools. And we do use water to soften the dirt. And then what we'll do is first of all, we will um, expose the finish. We'll expose the mosaic. We'll try to clean it off so the archeologist can read the surface. You may recall a few days ago, we had a situation where there was a, um, a foundation for a floor above the one we were in that had uh, foundations for columns that were laid right on top of the mosaic and they were set in ancient mortar. And when the stones were removed, that mortar was sticking to the surface of the mosaic and that required extremely slow, careful work to remove so that we didn't pull up tons of tesserae with the mortar as we removed it. So basically that's what we do. We go around the site, we take care of things. One of the key points after the cleaning of a mosaic fragment is its edging to make sure that nothing is um, going to get lost. Sometimes we find loose tesserae in the soil and the instruction there is if we know exactly where it goes, without question, without doubt, if it's positioned like right next to a design, we can put it back. But if not, we gather them in a bag separately, and then we edge around it, around the remaining mosaic. We use a lime mortar, which is made out of calcium carbonate, with an aggregate, which is crushed sand and crushed limestone. The mix is only designed to be strong enough to hold the mosaic in place. So for example, we don't want a lot of strength. We want just enough strength. You never want your repair mortar to be stronger than the original because then you can cause breakage in the original. You want the repair mortar to be there to do its job without impeding the strength of the original. And so we'll do that. We'll mix mortars, we'll put the mortars on. We're, we're most of the time um, in the middle of that process for most of the day. We break for breakfast like everyone does, and we um, then come back to work and get to a place with our work where we finish a section before we're done. And when we're done for the day on the mosaics on the site, one of the things we are very careful to do is make sure that we properly cover the mosaics because one of the biggest dangers on an archeological site with a mosaic is someone showing up and seeing it there and um, possibly looting it. So we try to be uh, very prudent about covering the mosaics to keep them from too much exposure before we're fully done with our edging work and also to protect them from peering eyes of people that might be too concerned about what's there. 
So we go back like all the archaeological students do. We take our showers, we have our lunch, we take a rest. And then you can see we come here to our little outdoor studio space right outside of our rooms and the beautiful kibbutz space on our plastic tables next to our sink and microwave. And we work on whatever artifacts we have here. When there's not much else that requires our instant attention, we will be conditioning the silica gel for the artifacts that have been stored over the years in these containers, especially anything made out of metal. And we also look at the, uh, the painted plaster fragments, try to clean them. And since so many of them are in tiny fragmentary conditions, as you can see here, like you see how many we have, we have like 35 of them in different types of reds and pinks. What we love to do is look for any connections between them to see if there's any that we can possibly stick together and, and get them to, you know, to find proper joins between them. So that's the basics of it. We'll work into the afternoon. We love having the students come by. We, there's nothing nicer for us than having a student that shows interest in this line of work because to become a conservator, to apply to graduate school in conservation, you need to have some experience in conservation in advance. And in the old days, there used to be heavy duty unpaid internship requirements that our field now frowns upon because it preferences people of, of um, socioeconomic privilege. But nowadays, you still need a portfolio that shows conservation work that you've done and works of art that you've uh, prepared. But uh, typically, these are paid positions outside of the archaeological context. Well, that is fascinating to learn more about conservation, and I encourage anyone here listening who's interested in conservation to come and talk to you and, and learn more about this, this fascinating field that really is interdisciplinary. I mean, you've talked about chemistry, really, and art and archaeology and history. There's so much that a, a conservationist has to know about in order to be successful in this field. For sure. For sure. There's a lot. Um, but it's an incredibly rewarding type of work because it's never boring. It's never boring. You're never dealing with the same thing, unless, of course, you specialize in, in something extremely unique. But even with a mosaic, let's say you're a mosaics conservator. You, do, you can deal with mosaics that are in the ground. You can deal with mosaics that have been reburied or mosaics that are in a museum context. There's all manner of ways that can be dealt with. Well, it looks like you have a variety of tables set up here in this courtyard with various artifacts sitting on them. Do you mind just taking us around to these stations and explaining what you found at the site and what the next steps are for you as a conservator with these items. Surely. Well, let's start here with the most basic, which is our table that has a lot of uh, fragments of plaster laid out. There's, um, you know, the, the walls of this synagogue at Hukok were plastered and painted and they had a kind of red ochre paint that was mixed sometimes with the lime itself to make colors and pinks and reds. And sometimes there were words on them, inscriptions. And what we have here, unfortunately, very little of it survived intact on the walls. And what we mainly get is loads and loads of small fragments. And that's what you see at the table. I believe we have here about 50 fragments sitting in front of me. And you see we have them laid out face up with their painted surfaces face up on trays that are lined with tissue paper so that we could keep them safe. And what we're doing, first of all, a lot of the, the pigment on these surfaces 
is very powdery. But the first and most important thing we try to do is make sure that none of them are crumbling or a term that we use in our field called disaggregating. And we, if they are, we use a material called a consolidant to hold their edges together and keep them from crumbling. Um, we clean the surfaces very carefully with just the tiniest bit of water. The, the paint itself is sometimes water soluble, but if you are careful not to flood the surface with too much water and just use a tiny cotton Q-tip swab, which we roll ourselves, as you can see here, all these long bamboo sticks and these piles of cotton, this is what we use to roll our swabs to the size that we want them. We clean the dirt off the surface. We consolidate the edges to keep from crumbling. And then we try to find matches between pieces. And there are some people that are so highly skilled at this that they can find those connections in a flash. And we try to bond anything together that we can because the bigger the piece, A, the safer it will be, and also better for the, the wall plaster specialist to read. We do have a little problem sometimes with the kibbutz cats that they like to jump on our table and scatter things. So we have to be very mindful of that as we work all the time. When we're not here, we keep everything very well packaged so that that doesn't happen. So let's walk over here for a second and take a look at this table that looks like it has a bunch of things that look like clots of dirt. Well, those are not clots of dirt. Those are little metal artifacts. You can see we have a nail of some sort, a ring-like item, and then a couple of bits of bronze. You can see the green corrosion on it. And um, they're all, they have that kind of um, clustery, dirty look because they all have dirt on their surfaces. And those are tricky to clean because what we're trying to do, we're trying to, first of all, make sure we can get the dirt off without fragmenting the metal itself. Because when you find metal on an archeological site, you don't know if there's any metal left at all or if what you're actually just getting is completely mineralized metal where there's no metallic core anymore. And then it's something pretty brittle. It's like finding a rock, if you will. Because what, what does metal do? Metal is very reactive, as you know. That's why we have wires made out of metal and um, all kinds of things that conduct electricity made out of metal. But when metal corrodes in the ground, when it's in its equilibrium environment, it, it wants to go back to its mineral state. Because most metals aren't found as metal ore. You hardly ever find copper as uh, metallic copper in the ground. The only thing that you find almost all the time is silver. Well, no, not, not even silver, but silver and gold. You can find strains of silver and gold, but most metal that is discovered is discovered as a mineral that is then smelted to remove the metallic ore from the mineral waste products. And in fact, that's an entire study archeologists have done over the years because the first trade routes are a result of trying to make combinations of metals with other metals to create stronger things. So in terms of our work, the key to it is this, the metal, when it goes into the ground, starts to mineralize. That's those green corrosion products that you see. That's the rust, the orange rust that you see on um, steel, on iron. And 
that that process is essentially a natural process of the metal going back to its equilibrium. And what used to be done in the past is archaeologists and restorers would put these metals through electro an electrolytic process to remove the um, corrosion products or the minerals, the, the patinas, and bring them back to metal. But that's not done anymore because there is information in the corrosion products that help archaeologists understand things like what was the alloy? What was that metal mixed with? So our job is just to clean the dirt off the surface and stabilize it as best as possible to make sure it doesn't have any condition that would keep it from being able to be preserved over time. Let's talk about one last item. Let's talk about this cluster here that looks like a jumble of broken glass with all its beautiful iridescence. These are glass vessels that were found on the site and ancient glass, basically glass is mainly silica, but the coloration comes from other minerals that are mixed with it or that, that are impurities that come in, during the process of the glass blowing. And what you see here, this is a lamp that fell and cracked and it got all jumbled together in the dirt. And this is very, very delicate because you don't want any of those like flaking um, surface iridescent products to be removed. So our work is to try to do the littlest amount of cleaning and removal possible so that the archeologists can study things and leave as much original material so that they can have information to do scientific analysis, which will give them information about connections with other sites, other trade routes, and also to show a beautiful object to its best capacity. Rosa, thank you so much for leading a fantastic tour about archaeological conservation and showing us some of what you found at, at the site. We're so appreciative of your time and expertise. If people want to learn more about your projects and also your upcoming book, where can they do so? If they want to learn more about my projects as an art conservator, please go to our studio's website, which is rlaconservation.com, and there you'll see a wide array of our projects. That's rlaconservation.com. And for my book, um, well, you can read my old book, Tropicana Nights, by just going to your favorite local bookstore or to Amazon or to uh, wherever you get your books. And my new book, which is called Dwell Time, A Memoir of Art, Exile, and Repair, will be coming out October 10th. And hopefully I'll get to do a show with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventures in the land of Israel. <laughs>